Good morning. Good morning. Don't get nervous because I brought a Bible with me. <laughs> so today is the last day of Passover. It depends on how you count, but uh, today's the last day of Passover and it's Orthodox Easter. So it's, and it's still Ramadan. So we're in the middle of this interesting convergence. And I was looking for a way to tie the Easter story and the Passover story together, but not in the obvious way where, you know, Jesus is crucified on just before Passover and then, you know, that, it's just too easy. So not looking at the history or pseudo history, uh, but look at the a subtext in these two holy days by looking at some of the actual text that talks about them. So the Bible is not one thing. I mean, it is if you go to buy one, right? But it has multiple books by multiple authors who don't necessarily agree on anything. And if you dig deeply into it, you can find all kinds of inferences and revelations, using that word in a non-theistic way, that are just not what you get in standard Sunday school. So for example, Exodus starts out with this question, a new pharaoh arose in Egypt, or not a question, a statement, a new pharaoh arose in, in Egypt who did not know Joseph, Joseph being stand-in for the Hebrews who were living in Egypt. So the question is, how come? Joseph was no minor character in Egyptian history according to the Bible. Joseph was incredibly important. Joseph saved the Egyptians from starvation during the seven years of famine. So what does it mean that a new pharaoh comes in and he doesn't know Joseph? So the word no can't mean he has no memory of this guy. It means he has no allegiance to Joseph and therefore to the Hebrew people. Why not? So I'm just going to read some stuff. This is don't share this with your Jewish friends, because they won't believe you. But it's in the Bible. So you know the story, right? Joseph's in, in prison. He's a dream interpreter. Pharaoh brings him out of prison to interpret a dream that Pharaoh can't understand. And none of the dream interpreters of Egypt can understand, because they really suck at their jobs, because it's so obvious. But anyway, he has a dream of you know, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph says, <clears throat> the dream is warning you to collect the extra food during the seven years of plenty and then <clears throat> give it back to the people during the seven years of famine so nobody starves. Makes total sense. Pharaoh says, oh, your idea, you do it. So Joseph becomes the most important person in Egypt. And this is what he does. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt, and in exchange, he gave the people the grain, which had been theirs, that he was simply storing, and then he sold it back to them. All right? It's good business, bad morality. So Joseph brought the money to Pharaoh's house. So Joseph didn't keep anything, but he took all the money and he sold them back their food, and then he basically bankrupted all the people of Egypt. But the famine continues. 
So the people go to, to, to Joseph and they said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. So Joseph said, all right, all right, give me your livestock and I'll give you some food. So, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's all in Genesis. So they say, okay, you know, take our livestock, better that than we die. So he takes all the livestock and gives that to Pharaoh and gives people food. Then they're still hungry. We cannot hide from my Lord, Joseph. We cannot hide from my Lord that our money is spent and all the herds of cattle belong to you. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. So we will die before our eyes. No, sorry. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We, with our land, will become slaves to Pharaoh. I mean, the whole idea of Passover is the Jews were enslaved to the, to the Pharaoh. But before you get to Exodus and that story, you get the Genesis story where the Hebrews, basically one, this guy Joseph, has now enslaved the entire Egyptian populace in order that they you know, can be fed. So they sell themselves into slavery. And they give all their land to, to Pharaoh through Joseph also. These are all family farmers. So they lost all their cash. They lost all their livestock. Now they have to give up their land and their freedom. Now they just work for Pharaoh. And then it goes on, I won't quote, but it goes on Joseph to make sure the family tie to the land is broken. They do a mass population transfer. And they move people off their land into the cities where they are enslaved you know, to work for Pharaoh. Now, slavery in the story is not the same as American slavery. You know that because when you read about the Hebrew slavery, they had houses and they had money and they had you know, stuff and they lived amongst the Egyptians. They weren't segregated. And when they left, the Egyptians gave them all kinds of things, you know, gold and silver. And, you know, so there was a weird relationship. But, um, and, and, and this is probably the same thing with regard to the Egyptians who are now completely enslaved to Pharaoh. They have to work for him, but then it goes on and Joseph says, okay, I'm going to provide you, we're gonna, we're gonna set, it sets up the system where the people have, uh, they're still farming, but the farmland belongs to Pharaoh. They're not farming necessarily their family farms, they're, but they're farming. The land belongs to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gets 20% of everything that's grown, and they get to keep the rest. And that's, that's how the story basically ends. When it says a new Pharaoh arose in Egypt, the implication is there was a revolution. The people finally got sick and tired of being enslaved to Pharaoh, so they revolted. The old Pharaoh is out, new Pharaoh comes in, and this new Pharaoh has no allegiance to the Hebrews, who did really well during the, the, the seven years of famine. The only people, according to the Bible, the only people who survived not only intact, but did well during the famine was Pharaoh and Pharaoh's extended family, the priests in, that worked for Pharaoh, and the Hebrews. Everybody else had a miserable time. So the new Pharaoh has no allegiance to these Hebrews. In fact, he's afraid of them because in their time of plenty, which was the Egyptian time of famine, they were growing more and more and more powerful. So the new Pharaoh does what a lot of authoritarians do. Uh, you can watch on CNN. And he tries to kill everyone who doesn't 
agree with him. And so in this story, in the, now we're moving to Exodus, it's um, you know, the Hebrews. So the, so the first way he tries to kill them is to have the midwives kill the baby boys when they're being born. Right? So this is how Exodus sort of begins. And in the whole Exodus story, it's actually one whole way to read this. I'm, I'm pointing out Genesis to see that there's, it's not all just the good, the good side and the bad side. Everybody's tainted here. But there's another subtext of a feminist uh, revolution, or resistance maybe is better, but a feminist act of resistance against Pharaoh. So how do we know that? So it says that the king orders the midwives to kill all the Hebrew baby boys when their mothers give birth. And it only names two of them, but it, it, the fact that it names them is important because most women go unnamed in the Bible, but the Bible gives us their names, Shifra and Puah. So they may have been the chief midwives, but whatever it is, they're, they're, they're the stand-ins for all the, the midwives in Egypt. And he tells them, go and kill the, the baby boys. But they don't do it. They just, it says, the way that the Bible puts it is, but they feared God. Um, they, they, um, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. It's an odd phrase because God in Egypt was Pharaoh. So they didn't fear that God. They feared some other God. So anyway, they, they resist and the boys don't die. So then Pharaoh has to go, you can sort of see how it works in his mind. <clears throat> well, I tried the women. They won't do what I want. So let's get the boys. And so he gets his soldiers to do it. And that's, you know, I mean, now there are women soldiers, but back then they were just male soldiers. And he tells the boys, go and kill the baby boys. And they go, okay, let's go do it. Right? So they go off to kill the baby boys. And then there's one woman who resists. So her name is Yochebed. Yochebed has two kids, uh, an older son named Aaron and a daughter named Miriam. And now she's got a new kid and he hasn't got a name yet. And she's hiding him. For three months, she tries to keep him hidden from the soldiers who are looking for baby boys to kill. But she realizes she can't, she can't get away with it any longer, so you know, she puts him in a basket and she sends him down the Nile where he's found by Shifra Pua Yochebed Miriam, the fifth woman in the story, who is the princess. She's the only woman who isn't named. So um, the princess, uh, Pharaoh's, you don't really know if it's his daughter or a niece or whatever it is, but uh, the princess uh, finds him and has the baby brought over to her and she takes, opens the, ca the casket, the basket, <laughs> and she sees that it's a Hebrew baby. So this Passover, we had a debate in my house about how she knew it was a Hebrew baby. So <laughs> I said it was because the baby was circumcised. My wife said that's wrong because later Moses gets circumcised by his wife. So then I said, oh yeah, you're right. So how did, he, she, how did she know? So my wife's theory is that the Jews had a certain pattern of weaving. And though when she opened the, the basket, she saw the, the um, swaddling clothes and she said, oh, look, it's Hebrew pattern of weaving. So this must be a Hebrew baby. The point being though, that she knew 
The princess knew she was vi- she was supposed to kill the kid. That's what her father wants. That's what Pharaoh wants. But she doesn't. So there's this whole resistance going on among the women. First the two, uh, Shifra and Pua, the two uh, midwives. Then Moses' mother, Jochebed. Then um, the princess. And then Miriam comes out, his sister comes out and says, hey, you want some help with the baby? I know a woman. <laughs> and that's her mother, and that's Moses' mother. So, and the princess gives him the name Moses. There's another woman in the story, Zipporah, who's Moses, uh, who, who Moses marries, and she saves his life. So his mother saves his life, and then the princess saves his life, and then his wife saves his life. Pharaoh is trying to kill him in the first instances. God is trying to kill him in the uh, last instance. And the, the Bible is very confusing. You don't know if God is angry with Moses because, because Moses is not circumcised or because his son is not circumcised. It's very confusing. My wife says Moses is not circumcised. I'm not convinced, but I I give up the argument. (laughs) And anyway, in that story, his wife grabs a flint rock and circumcises somebody. (laughs) It's either Moses or their kid, Gershon, but it's not really clear. so maybe, maybe she circumcises Moses and saves his life. Even if it's his son that she circumcises, still she's saving Moses' life because God stops you know, going after him. The point being, this, this just another subtext of a women's resistance movement against Pharaoh. Third subtext. The story seems to be a historical narrative, even if it's not real history, and no one, well, I should say no one, no scholars think it's real history, but it's historical fiction and whatever. But you can, you can read it not as historical fiction, you can read it as a theological, I don't know if the word is manifesto or attack, because the, the, the story reaches its climax in the 10 plagues. So if you've ever been to a Seder, the plagues are chanted. And with each plague, the chanting of each plague, you're supposed to take your little, your pinky of your right hand, pinky finger, and you dip it into the wine, and you take wine out, and you throw it on a plate. Maybe they used to throw it on the ground, but you throw it on a plate. So that when you drink the wine thereafter, you're not inadvertently toasting to the suffering of the, of the, of the Egyptian people. Lots of books have been written about the 10 plagues, you know, trying to make them natural. So the Nile floods, so that was, you know, one of the, maybe that's what they're talking about. And when it floods, the frogs come up, and maybe that's what they're talking about. And there's dust storms, and that's what, you know, who knows? They, they try to find, especially Isaac Asimov in his Bible commentary goes to great lengths to try to show you these were all natural phenomena that happened over long periods of time in Egypt. And whoever created the the Exodus narrative smushed them together into this you know, 10, uh, 10 day event. That, that's not accurate probably, but it's not completely far-fetched. A more interesting subtext is every one of the plagues relates to a specific Egyptian god. So the god of the Nile, or the goddess of the Nile, the Nile's turned to blood, so that god is defeated. This is how they thought about it. You have um, the cows get 
mad cow disease, but Hathor, the, cow, the cow-headed god, is defeated when the cows get sick. And you can go through all of them. I won't go through all ten. But you can go through all of them, and each one is associated with a specific god. Right up to the end, where the, the death of the firstborn, the firstborn that matters most, to Pharaoh anyway, who is God, is Pharaoh's own firstborn son. So even Pharaoh is defeated because here is the, the, the high god of Egypt, and he can't even save his own son. Now you can see a real interesting twist into the New Testament where the all-powerful God sacrifices his son. Pharaoh doesn't do this voluntarily. It's done against him. But later on, you could argue, oh, look, there's some kind of, I don't know if you want to say spiritual or theological evolution in people's thinking. So they went from uh, the killing of, of uh, Pharaoh's son against Pharaoh's wishes to the killing of God's son in accordance with God's wishes. Now, what you want to make of that, we can talk about it and talk back. <clears throat> but it, it, there's a, a trail here that I think leads directly into the Easter story. So I'm trying to keep track of time, but I forgot when I started, so I really have no idea. Um, so you've got this now iconoclastic theme going on. You have the feminist theme, and now you've got this iconoclastic thing. The feminist theme is they're opposing Pharaoh. The iconoclastic theme is now they're opposing all the gods. Pharaoh being one of them, now they're opposing all the gods. When Moses, now I'm going backwards here, but it makes more sense to do it this way. When Moses meets God and sets this whole thing in motion, or God sets this whole thing in motion, the God that Moses meets is unlike any of the gods that anyone has met so far. In that, this god is a disembodied voice. He just comes and he talks out of a shrub, which is not the most imposing thing. But, and, and this god is only concerned with one thing, and that is liberating the Hebrew people from their enslavement. He's not concerned with worship, he's not concerned with theology, he's not concerned with anything but freedom, liberation. And then you can make a whole case that this is what the Hebrew God, this is the intention of the writer of that story to try to tell you that there's another God who isn't about power, who isn't about uh, being worshipped, but is about liberating people from, from slavery. And then you, can, you, you get the, the pun in Hebrew, you don't get it in English, but the word Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, which is a play on words. It means from the enslaved places, or from the places of enslavement. So the whole story could be read as these gods are enslaving people, and there's this other kind of deity who wants to liberate them and does so by killing the gods, through the, you know, metaphorically through the, through the plagues. You follow me so far? No? <laughs> you can ask me later. I'll see if I can make more sense out of it. So this disembodied freedom god starts this whole thing in motion. And the whole story can be read as a story of people resisting centralized power you know, that enslaves them, up to a point. So now they get out of Egypt. Right? Then Pharaoh sends the army after them, because Pharaoh re realizes, if I let them get away, 
my, my power is shot. I, I have no standing whatsoever. So I've got to go get these people, bring them back or, or wipe them out. So he sends the army after them. And then the Red Sea split. And of course, it's not the Red Sea. It's probably called the Reed Sea. The Red Sea is huge. The Reed Sea is like this. And the people could just probably splash through it. But in any case, in this story, you know, there's this whole thing about their, their backs are to Pharaoh's uh, army coming crashing down on them. And their front is facing the Red Sea, which they can't cross. And then Moses prays to God to do something about it. In addition to Bible stories, in Judaism, there's a whole multi-volume, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just thousands and thousands of stories, probably, of fan fiction that tries to flesh out more than the Bible tells you. So in the fan fiction, it's called Midrash in Judaism. In the fan fiction, there's this story that you don't read about in the Bible where Moses says, God, you know, you took us out of Egypt. We're going to die here and, and drown uh, or be killed by Pharaoh. And in the fan fiction, God says, you know, I got you out. It's up to you now. <laughs> I'm done. You know, I, I'm not, don't, don't come to me. Don't ask me. So while Moses is standing there completely flummoxed about what to do, there are these old people who are uh, in the front near the, the shore and they basically say, you know, I'd rather drown free than go back and be a slave. So they just start walking into the water. And the more they walk into the sea, the more the sea backs up. So they step one step forward, the sea goes one step back. The sea won't touch them. And then when the people realize that the sea is not going to touch them, then everyone races in and the sea splits. God has nothing to do with it. It's not a miracle in the sense of God says to Moses, yeah, stand back or raise up your staff and I'm going to fix this. In the Midrash, it's people refusing to lose what little freedom they've got. It's been a few days. And walking in to die if they, if they, need, if they, if they need to. And in fact, finding salvation by challenging the laws of nature and, and just walking into the water and having the water recede. So it's all part of this iconoclasm of challenging gods. And there's a lot more stories I could throw, throw at you about this, this iconoclasm, but the idea is, I hope, somewhat clear, that the subtext of Passover, I'm going to come to Easter in a sec, the subtext of Passover is this feminine revolution against power and this more theological, iconoclastic revolution against divine power. The feminist revolution against human power, and then this iconoclastic revolution against uh, divine power. And then it just goes on. But the people can't, can't hold on to the liberation or the iconoclasm that they start with. So the first thing they do is they start to complain. Like, wait, I think it was better in Egypt. You know, we're out in the desert wandering around. I think we were had it better in Egypt. Let's go back. And, they, and that's another way you know that slavery that in the Bible is not the same as slavery in, in, in the American South. Because they were saying, hey, we had lots to eat. We had all this stuff. We should just go back. They don't, because Moses kills everyone who says that. <laughs> but then 
Moses goes up you know, the mountain to um, get the Ten Commandments. And what's the first thing that people do? They build another god, a golden calf. I mean, you could look at it as the first communal art project, <laughs> because they all contribute. But they go back, and they, they build this golden calf. And then Moses comes down, and he's really ticked off, and God is really ticked off. They couldn't stand the idea of having an invisible God who only wants them to be free. So they built uh, a god, an, you know, an idol of their own, that they could see, they could worship, and they could basically enslave themselves to. So for all the iconoclasm that the story starts with, it ends with people saying, now we have to have a god. And not just this invisible god who wants us to be free. We have to have a god that we can worship, who's got rules, who's got a priesthood. And basically they recreate what they had in Egypt, except for the slavery part. The people could not take the responsibility that people have to take when they give up on an all-powerful, all-knowing God. So let's skip now to, to Easter. I love Easter. I mean, I, I like holidays, <laughs> so maybe that's not so surprising. But what I love about Easter is the original Easter narrative in the Gospel of Mark. So there are four official Gospels in the canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Though we start with Matthew in the book, chronologically, Mark is the first one that was written. Everything else is a midrash, if you like. You know, it just builds on Mark. So Mark is the original Gospel. <clears throat> Mark's Jesus dies on the cross, and you've heard me talk about this part of it before. And he only says one thing, and it isn't, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It isn't, unto, it's finished, unto your hands, you know, I commend my spirit. It's none of those nice things. It's a horrifying thing. And it says in Mark, at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's not crying out so everybody can hear him. He's crying out in despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's the first verse of, of the 22nd Psalm. And so some people say, well, he's really just starting the Psalm, but he doesn't get to finish. That's not really what Mark is saying. Mark is saying at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus lost his faith. To whatever extent he thought there was some big God who was going to save him, he doesn't have it anymore. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Mark is, is drawing, hearkening back to the iconoclastic theme in Exodus, that Jesus has no God at that moment. It's just Jesus, the guy on the cross. God is dead, but not permanently. So he calls out, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. A couple days later, 
you know, he's, he's placed in, uh, in, in a tomb. And then a couple days later, uh, the women come to anoint his body. And I'm going to read this part. So, so Mark has three endings. The original ending, then some editor said, man, you can't leave it like this. So they tacked on a shorter ending. And then someone said, no, that doesn't really solve our problem either. And they created a longer ending. But here's the original ending. So when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, meaning Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So first day of the week is Sunday. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. So if you've ever been to the tomb, and you can go to the tomb uh, in Jerusalem, these big stones were laid in troughs. They were like giant cheese wheels in, in troughs, so you could roll them back and forth, because people went to visit and put new people in the tombs. They weren't just one-person tombs. So anyway, someone had rolled it back, so they didn't have to worry about it. Uh, and as they entered the tomb, the three of them, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. All right, so he, the tomb is empty. I mean, that's the whole message of, of Easter. The tomb is empty. And now he, this, whoever this guy is who's sitting in there, he's showing them, look, this is where he was, because he's not Jesus. This is where he was, and now he's gone. Look, there is the place they laid him. And he's still talking to the women. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they're supposed to go find the boys who are too scared to show their faces, right? <clears throat> so it's, it's interesting that, again, it's the women, like Shifra and Pua and Jochebed and Miriam and the princess. It's the women, in this case, the two Marys and Salome, who are the heroes of this story. They're the ones who go and, and find him gone and who are supposed to announce the resurrection, which makes no sense in a, in, in a way. In a patriarchal narrative, it should have been Peter. It's Peter's story. You know, ultimately, it's Peter's church. So Peter should have gone. You know, if I were writing it, everyone would have said, no, we can't go. And Peter said, I will go because I'm you know, the rock upon which this church. So, but it doesn't have that. It's these women who go. And then they're told, um, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going, Jesus, is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So that, that's how they're supposed to do it. But this is, the, this is the closing verse. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the, that's the first gospel, and that's how it ends. There's no meeting with Jesus. There's nothing. It's these three women go in to anoint his body. He's gone. They're freaked out. They're given a command, go tell everybody that he's raised. And they go running out. We're not telling anybody anything. 
Mark ends his gospel with the God of Jesus being dead, really. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now this potential raised being is also just left, uh, if I say left hanging, it sounds like a pun, you know, I, I, you know I'm, uh, I'm making a joke, but that's not what I meant. But it's just left open-ended. <clears throat> if this were the only gospel, that would be the end of the story. No one would know what happened. So editors come in and say, uh, and all that they had, and, and all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent out through them, uh, from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Because <laughs> somebody said, "What? <laughs> you can't, Mark. You can't end this like this. Nobody will buy the sequel. You have got to, you know, you've got to do something." So someone wrote this, and then said, so, "No, that's not going to do it." So someone else wrote. Now after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. He went out and told those who had been with him while they were on the mountain and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had, seen, uh, had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them, and they were walking in the, as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe him. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves, uh, as they were sitting at the table and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. It goes on from there. I mean, Jesus takes care of it. He appears to people over and over and over again. Nobody believes him, but it's not like he's not there. I like Mark in the original because it is more honest, I think. And, it's, and it leaves the responsibility for living an iconoclastic faith up to us in, in this way. In the uh, Exodus story, the people escape. They've just, in a sense, right, just give me, sort of go with this. They've just seen the death of the gods of Egypt. They don't have a god. They don't see a god that they, they're going to follow. They're going to make one later. So they've just, they're living without God. They're living in this iconoclastic, God-shattering universe, and, the, and they can't handle it. So they build a God. In the Mark story, Mark leaves you in the same place. What are you going to make of the empty tomb? The editors who come later tell you what to make of it. But, and, and the rest of the, the Hebrew Bible tells you what to do with your your inability to live in iconoclastic faith. You have to build gods, and if you can't build gods, then you'll, you'll have a temple and you do all the worship. People cannot handle living without some god to whom they can turn. And so we always replace these moments of iconoclastic freedom with gods of one type or another. Passover and Easter, in Mark's Easter anyway, Passover and Easter could be opportunities to challenge ourselves to step beyond gods and to see what happens when we are really free. Not just free from the enslavement of, of Egypt, but free from belief in these powerful supernatural beings that ultimately demand immorality from us. In, in so many cases anyway. 
Can we live without them? And the Bible suggests no, but I think the holidays give us a chance to ask, well, maybe, is, is that inevitable? Maybe we could. How would we if we could? And that's what I want to pick up on Talkback, is how would we live if we had no, no idols? Is that really possible for humans? All right, hopefully that made sense, and we can pick up the rest later. Thank you.